0: I'm gonna tell you something.
1: My life is changing and it's not great. From where I read, of the freedom of speech. Well, the next one still looks like a war zone here. looks like ground
2: zero. Well, the
3: next round hit my husband, hit my soul. Does he have a crush on me? No. Figures. I just believe I died for my cross. Hearing is Hearing seeing. seeing. From American Public Media, this is an American Radio Works documentary.
4: If you're black, you should be thinking black. And if you're black and you're not thinking black at this late date, well, I'm sorry for you.
3: Generations of black Americans used the power of sermons and speechmaking to fight for equal rights.
4: We want power to
0: determine our own destiny in our own black communities.
3: Over the past half century, African Americans called out for change in their land, but they didn't speak with one voice.
5: Why is this black man leading this effort? to eliminate affirmative action.
3: Stay with us over the coming hour as we listen to great speeches on civil rights and African-American identity. Say it loud from American Radio Works. First, this news. From American Public Media, this is an American Radio Works documentary. Say it loud, great speeches on civil rights and African-American identity. I'm Stephen Smith.
4: Negroes have listened to the trickery and the lies and the false promises of the white man now for too long. And they're fed up
6: those of us of my generation and generations before me were accommodating themselves to segregation in ways that you of this generation refuse to do. Let us be dissatisfied until that day when
1: nobody will shout white power, when nobody will shout black power, but everybody will talk about God's power and human power.
3: Malcolm X, Ella Baker, Martin Luther King, Jr., just three of many African Americans who mastered the power of words to move a multitude. Black orators have called on America to make good on its promise of democracy and have called on each other to march for freedom. Historian Peniel Joseph says the act of speaking out goes back for generations.
7: Political speech making was very, very important in a society where most blacks were not literate. Most blacks were not even um, semi-literate. Uh, because um, reading was outlawed in the Confederacy. So the oral tradition is a huge framing device for the
3: African-American
7: freedom struggle.
3: In the early part of the 20th century, an era of rigid segregation in the South and widespread discrimination in the North, African-Americans deliberated about how hard to push for equality. As the modern civil rights movement gained momentum in the 1960s, the debate focused on whether nonviolent protest was still the most effective way to demand equal citizenship. Toward the end of the 20th century and the start of a new millennium, the most overt forms of discrimination were banned by law. But African Americans still endured disproportionately high rates of poverty and imprisonment. Even though America is being led by its first black president, the debates continue about the best way for African-Americans to gain social and economic parity. Over the coming hour, we'll hear the evolution of ideas and arguments pulsing through the black freedom struggle from the 1960s to the present. We'll listen to some of the most significant political speechmaking of the past 50 years and to debates that involve basic questions about what it means to be black in America. We'll start with Malcolm X in 1964 and his speech, The Ballot or the Bullet?
4: Whether you are are a Christian or a Muslim or a nationalist, we all have the same problem. They don't hang you because you're a Baptist. They hang you because you're black. They don't attack me because I'm a Muslim. They attack me because I'm black. They attack all of us for the same reason. All of us catch hell from the same enemy. We're all in the same bag. In the same boat. We suffer political oppression, economic exploitation, and social degradation. All of them from the same enemy. The government has failed us. You can't deny that. Anytime you live in the 20th century, 1964, and you walking around here singing we shall overcome,
8: the government has failed.
3: Us. Malcolm X was one of the most dynamic and influential figures of the civil rights era. For a time, he was the chief spokesman for the Nation of Islam, a separatist black Muslim sect that was fiercely critical of the mainstream civil rights movement and of racial integration. Malcolm X broke with the Nation of Islam in 1964, but he continued to disparage the kind of nonviolent protest, the sit-ins and the marches, championed by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.
4: It's not so good to refer to what you're going to do as a sit-in. That right there castrates you. Right there it brings you down. What what goes with it? What think of the image of a someone sitting? An old woman can sit, an old man can sit, a chump can sit, a coward can sit, anything can sit. Well you and I have been sitting long enough, and it's time today for us to start doing some standing and some fighting to back that up.
3: Malcolm X delivered this address at a Detroit church in nineteen sixty-four. Historian Peniel Joseph.
7: Malcolm in The Ballad of the Bullet is now an independent political activist. And so when he discusses The Ballad of the Bullet, in a way, the title of that obscures a, a speech that really is talking about transforming American democracy whether it's by transforming democratic institutions, which is the ballot, or self-defense, which is gonna lead to a political revolution, which is the
3: bullet. Malcolm X gave this speech just as Southern Democrats in the United States Senate were fighting against the 1964 Civil Rights Act. It was Malcolm X's fullest declaration to date of his black nationalist philosophy.
4: The only way we're going to uh, solve our problem is with a self-help program. Before we can get a self-help program started, we have to have a self-help philosophy. Black nationalism is a self-help philosophy. What's so good about it, you can stay right in the church where you are and still take black nationalism as your philosophy. You can stay in any kind of civic organization that you belong to and still take black nationalism as your philosophy. You can be an atheist and still take black nationalism as your philosophy. This is a philosophy that eliminates the necessity for division and argument. Because if you're black, you should be thinking black. And if you're black and you're not thinking black at this late date, well, I'm sorry for you.
3: Like Malcolm X, a playwright named Lorraine Hansberry had a key role in the transformation of African-American consciousness. Hansberry was the first black woman to have a show produced on Broadway. It was the 1959 play A Raisin in the Sun, a story about a black working-class family in Chicago trying to escape the ghetto. It became a Broadway hit and a Hollywood movie. But the themes in Raisin in the Sun also spoke directly to questions about what it means to be black in America. Historian Rhonda Williams...
4: She has this reach where she's able to talk to a different audience, right? A theater audience where we mostly see white liberals uh, who are coming and experiencing the theater. So she has this form to talk to people, and it's pretty profound. And she, as a black woman, breaking boundaries that had never been broken before.
3: Lorraine Hansberry grew up on the south side of Chicago. Her parents were leading civil rights activists who challenged laws banning minorities from certain Chicago neighborhoods. Hansberry gave the following speech as part of a panel discussion on liberal activism in 1964 at New York's Town Hall Forum. Hansberry was frustrated that liberals weren't helping enough in the freedom struggle. Here's an excerpt.
8: And so I sat down and wrote a letter to the New York Times about the fact that I am of a generation of Negroes that comes after a whole lot of other generations. And my father, for instance, who was, uh, you know, real American type American successful businessman, uh, very civic-minded and so forth, was the sort of American who put a great deal of money, a great deal of his really extraordinary talents, and a great deal of passion into everything that we say is the American way of going after goals. That is to say that he moved his family into a restricted area where no Negroes were supposed to live and then proceeded to fight the case in the courts all the way to the Supreme Court of the United States. And this cost a great deal of money. It involved the assistance of NAACP attorneys and so on. And this is the way of struggling that everyone says is the proper way to do. And it eventually uh, resulted in a a decision against restrictive covenants, which is very famous, Hansberry versus Lee. And uh, that was very much applauded. But the problem is, that Negroes are just as segregated in the city of Chicago now as they were then. And my father died a disillusioned exile in another country. That is the reality that I am faced with when I get up and I read that some Negroes my own age and younger say that we must now lie down in the streets, tie up traffic, stop ambulances, do whatever we can, take to the hills if necessary with some guns, and fight back, you see. This This is the difference. And I wrote to the Times and said, you know, can't you understand that this is the perspective from which we are now speaking? It isn't as if we got up today and said, you know, what can we do to irritate America? You know, (laughs) it's because that since 1619, Negroes have tried every method of communication, of transformation of their situation from petition, to the vote, everything. We've tried it all. There isn't anything that hasn't been exhausted. Isn't it rather remarkable that we can talk about a people who were publishing newspapers while they were still in slavery in 1827? You see, they've been doing everything, writing editorials for a long time, uh, you know.
3: Playwright Lorraine Hansberry speaking at the Town Hall Forum in New York City in 1964. Seven months later, Hansberry died of cancer at the age of 34. The next speaker was once described as one of the most consequential and yet one of the least honored people in America. She's been called the godmother of the modern civil rights movement because she played a pivotal organizing role for the NAACP, for Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., and for young black activists in the 1960s. Her name? Ella Baker. Ella Baker is phenomenal. Historian Rhonda Williams. Ella
4: Baker is the woman who is a a visionary. She is the woman who has been behind the scenes in a lot of organizations to sustain and to carry forward the mission of fighting for racial justice and progress for all people.
3: In the summer of 1964, Ella Baker was the keynote speaker at the first convention of the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party, or MFDP. Baker and other voting rights organizers formed the MFDP to challenge the Mississippi whites-only Democratic Party. Mississippi was one of the deadliest places in the South to fight for racial justice, but Baker was fearless. She convinced a generation of young organizers that the way to force massive change in the racially repressive South was to harness the power of local people.
6: In truth, I do not consider this a political convention in the usual terms. I consider this a demonstration on the part of the people of Mississippi that they are determined to be a part of the body politic of this country, <clears throat> that, they, that they are determined to be respected as men and women even in the Delta area of Mississippi.
3: (laughs) Historian Claiborne Parsons says it was Ella Baker's unique vision of how to organize the masses that made her one of the most influential figures in the civil rights movement. She understood
2: that grassroots struggle was the strongest force within the African-American community for change. Uh, She was skeptical about top-down leadership, whether that top-down leadership was uh, Walter White in the NAACP or Martin Luther King, the top-down leaders tended to be male, and she was one of those females who actually do most of the work.
3: In her speech at the MFDP convention, which was held in the state capital of Jackson, Mississippi, Baker offered a political analysis explaining why the work of the MFDP was so crucial. First, she said, southern states like Mississippi had perpetrated an age-old lie that, as sovereign states, they could ignore federal civil rights laws.
6: A second aspect of our problem, I believe, is the fact that after the South established itself in this respect, the rest of the country tacitly agreed. What does that mean? It simply means that the rest of the country went along with it. They did very little, very, very little to change the situation in the South. Example after example could be quoted. But no better example can be given than the fact that despite the deprivation of the right to vote on the part of all Southern states for a long period of time, at no point, at no point were the Southern states denied their representation on the basis of the fact that they had denied other people the right to participate in the election of those who govern them. And the Constitution provided for this opportunity to decrease the representation in proportion as there were denials of people of uh, their right to vote. And we went along with it in other respects. We went along with the concept that many times the rest of the country accepted the old, old slogans that the Negro people of the South were happy and satisfied. And this, of course, was never true. It wasn't even true in the darkest days of slavery. And it hasn't been ever true. <laughs> so then, the second factor in our situation is the attitude of the rest of the country. One is the situation in the South, in the in the political leadership of the South, The other is the attitude of the rest of the country. And the third factor that helped to contribute to our present state for a long time was the fact that Negroes, those of us of my generation and generations before me, were accommodating themselves to segregation in ways that you of this generation refuse to do. And so this is one of the third factors. But the signal for the day of accommodation came in 1960, when throughout the Southland, apparently without rhyme or reason, area after area, hundreds of students, and yes, thousands of Negro students, began to demonstrate for hot dogs. But it wasn't just hot dogs they were demonstrating for. They were demonstrating for the right of an individual to eat a hot dog if he wanted to, if he had the money to pay for it, and not be relegated to a second-class status because of the color of his skin. And this this spelt the death knell of the accommodating type of Negro leadership.
3: Ella Baker, speaking in Jackson, Mississippi, in 1964. The Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party went on to challenge racial discrimination in the National Democratic Party and eventually opened the doors to greater black participation in American politics. You're listening to Say It Loud, great speeches on civil rights and African-American identity from American Radio Works. Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. was the most powerful voice for nonviolent social change in the 20th century civil rights movement. But when he gave this next speech in 1967, it seemed his influence was waning. King's voice was getting drowned out by urban riots and by the militant rhetoric of young black activists. Well, by 1967,
2: he has a major challenge from the black power movement. Influenced by Malcolm X. Historian Claiborne Carson. And the basic elements of that challenge was saying that once you move beyond legal rights, equality under the law, and try to transform that into substantive
3: change for the black community, you have to ask yourself, does nonviolence still work? By 1967, King had come to a depressing realization. The civil rights victories he had helped win had done little to improve economic conditions for poor blacks. But in the face of his critics, King continued to insist that nonviolence was the only moral and practical way to fight for equality. In August 1967, King addressed the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, the civil rights group that he headed. His speech was called, Where Do We Go From Here? Here's an excerpt.
1: Now let me rush on to say we must reaffirm our commitment to nonviolence. I wanna stress this, the futility of violence in the struggle for racial justice has been tragically etched in all the recent Negro riots. Yesterday I tried to analyze the riots and deal with the causes for them Today I want to give the other side. There's something something painfully sad about a riot. One sees screaming youngsters and angry adults fighting hopelessly and aimlessly against impossible odds. Deep down within them you perceive a desire for self-destruction, a kind of suicidal longing. Occasionally, Negroes contend that the 1965 Watts riot and the other riots in various cities represented effective civil rights action. But those who express this view always end up with stumbling words when asked what concrete gains have been won as a result. At best, the riots have produced a little additional anti-poverty money allotted by frightened government officials and a few water sprinklers to cool the children of the ghettos, it is something like improving the food in the prison while the people remain securely incarcerated behind bars. Nowhere have the riots won any concrete improvement, such as have the organized protest demonstration. When one tries to pin down advocates of violence as to what acts would be effective, the answers are blatantly illogical. Sometimes they talk of overthrowing racist state and local governments, and they talk about guerrilla warfare. They fail to see that no internal revolution has ever succeeded in overthrowing a government by violence unless the government had already lost the allegiance and effective control of its armed forces. Anyone in his right mind knows that this will not happen in the United States. In a violent racial situation, the power structure has the local police, the state troopers, the National Guard, and finally the army to call on, all of which are predominantly white. Furthermore, few if any violent revolutions have been successful unless the violent minority had the sympathy and support of the non-resistant majority. Castro may have had only a few Cubans actually fighting with him and up in the hills, but he would have never overthrown the Batista regime unless he had had the sympathy of the vast majority of Cuban people. It is perfectly clear that a violent revolution on the part of American blacks would find no sympathy and support from the white population and very little from the majority of the Negroes themselves. This is no time for romantic illusions and empty philosophical debates about freedom. This is a time for action. What is needed is a strategy for change, a tactical program that will bring the Negro into the mainstream of American life as quickly as possible. So far, this has only been offered by the nonviolent movement. Without recognizing this, we will end up with solutions that don't solve,
3: answers that don't answer, and explanations that don't explain. The Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. speaking in 1967. King's commitment to nonviolence made him seem moderate compared to many younger African Americans who advocated for armed self-defense. But in the last years of his life, King's proposals to create genuine racial equality were quite radical. He called for a massive redistribution of wealth, and he began organizing a poor people's campaign to eliminate poverty. King never lived to see that battle through. He was assassinated in April 1968 in Memphis, Tennessee. For many militant civil rights activists, the murder of Martin Luther King Jr. proved that nonviolent protest would never bring freedom in a racist America. In Oakland, California, the Black Panther Party advocated armed self-defense against police brutality and revolution against white power structures. The Panthers also ran popular community service programs for the poor. The Panthers were founded in 1966 by Huey Newton and Bobby Seale, As their influence spread across the nation, the Panther leadership quickly topped the FBI's list of national threats. Historian Peniel Joseph says the Panthers drew their inspiration from Malcolm X and from Chinese Communist Revolutionary leader Mao Zedong. The Panthers
7: are both intellectuals, but the Panthers also have a rough and tumble side. Sometimes people are going to say they're thugs, they're criminals, they're comics. The so-called Huey Newton calls them brothers off the block, uh, brothers who are selling drugs, can be turned into revolutionaries.
3: Fed up with poverty and police brutality, Bobby Seale and Huey Newton devised a 10-point program to empower African-Americans and give them control of their own communities. Black Panther chairman Bobby Seale read out the group's goals in a speech he delivered in April 1968. Seale was mourning the recent police killing of a young Black Panther in Oakland, as well as the death of Dr. King.
0: Listen! And our program, it states, if you haven't read it, you begin to read it, you begin to understand it. This program is not outlined for the white community, it's outlined for the black community. Now, number one, we want power to determine our own destiny in our own black communities. Number two, we want full employment for our people. Number three, we want decent housing, fit for shelter of human beings. Number four, we want an end to the robbery by the white man of black people in their black communities. Number five, we want decent education that teaches us about the true nature of this racist, decadent system, and education that teaches us about our true history and our role in society and the world. Number six, we want all black men to be exempt from military service. Number number seven, number seven, we want an immediate end to police brutality and murder of black people. Number eight, We want all black men and women to be released from county jails, prisons, federal, state, what have you, because they have not had fair trials. They've been tried by all white juries. (laughs) Number nine, we want all people, when brought to trial, to be tried in a court by their peer groups or people from their black community, as is defined by your jive constitution of the United States. Number 10, in a summarization, we want some land, we want some bread, we want some clothing, we want some education, we want some justice, and we want some damn peace.
3: Within a few years of this 1968 speech by Bobby Seale, the Black Panthers went into a steep and permanent decline. A combination of FBI sabotage, troubled finances, and internal power struggles hobbled the organization. Yet Peniel Joseph says their impact as part of the Black Power movement was profound. It's really
7: during the Black Power movement that we're going to get um, the rise of Black elected officials. We're going to see things like Black studies programs and departments. And it's also during that time period that when we think about culture and the arts, that we have the solidification of something that serves at least as a kind of antidote to racist culture. Sometimes people call it Black is beautiful or James Brown saying, I'm black and I'm proud. But that's very, very important. And it's something that I think contemporary African-Americans and whites take for granted, that you could be proud to be black. This is all very new um, in the history of the republic. So this is connected to not just civil rights, but to the black power period as well.
3: Peniel Joseph says the massive changes wrought by the civil rights and the black power movements in the 1960s and 70s opened the door to much greater diversity in black political and cultural identity. Class divisions opened up that segregation had helped keep at bay. What's interesting
7: about Jim Crow is that Jim Crow actually um, forced blacks to at times transcend class divisions because the discrimination was so group centered. If you were in Montgomery, Alabama, during the bus boycott, even if you were the richest black man in the city, there is going to be a politics of discrimination against you in the South, right? So so what we're seeing now is much more individual identity, much more an identity of saying, I can be many different things and I happen to be black. So, you know, you could say there's 40 million black people and there's 40 million different ways to be, to be black.
3: This is Stephen Smith. You're listening to an American Radio Works documentary, Say It Loud, Great Speeches on Civil Rights and African American Identity. You can hear many of these speeches in their entirety at our website, AmericanRadioWorks.org. While you're there, you can see photographs of the orators and find out how to order the companion book and CD set for Say It Loud. Coming up after a short break, Black Voices at the End of the Millennium and the Dawn of the 21st Century.
9: My father must have told me a thousand times, get all the education you can, boy, because no white racist can take it away from you. Our people have lost that.
3: Say It Loud continues in just a moment from American Public Media. From American Public Media, this is an American Radio Works documentary, Say It Loud, Great Speeches on Civil Rights and African American Identity. I'm Stephen Smith. The African American scholar W.E.B. Du Bois famously predicted that the problem of the 20th century would be the problem of the color line, of the pressing need for the United States to confront and rectify its grim history of racial injustice. By the end of the 20th century, much had been accomplished toward that goal. But as the most blatant forms of discrimination vanished, high rates of black poverty persisted. Debates about how to achieve equality under the law gave way to debates about how best to achieve economic equality, including whether affirmative action was the right course of action.
5: The question arises, over and over again. Why is this black man leading this effort to eliminate affirmative action in a state like California?
3: Ward Connerly is the most prominent leader of the drive to eliminate affirmative action policies in the United States. Affirmative action is the practice of considering personal characteristics such as race, ethnicity, or gender when making decisions about applicants for a job, a contract, or enrollment in school. Connerly argues that race-based remedies to past discrimination merely prolong America's racial divisions and inequities. A Republican businessman, Connerly sat on the University of California's Board of Regents. In the mid-1990s, Connerly successfully championed California's Proposition 209, which banned the consideration of race, ethnicity, or gender in hiring, contracting, college admissions, and state programs. In speeches like this one in 1998, Connerly expresses his devotion to the Declaration of Independence and the nation's founding promise of equality. He spoke at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government.
5: And as a young student of the 60s, when the man after after whom this great facility is named, said on June 11, 1963, race has no place in American life or law. I believe that stuff. To the core of my being, I came away from that period in time believing, as Dr. King said, that this nation would live out the true meaning of its creed and treat me as an individual, not judge me by what I am, But judge me by who I am. If I'm a rotten scoundrel, judge me accordingly. But at least let me prove to you that I'm a rotten scoundrel rather than your presuming that on the basis of some immutable traits. And so it was that as a regent, when I discovered that the University of California was really using different standards to admit people, We were classifying them on the basis of whether they're African-American or Chicano or Latino or American Indian or Asian or white. We're making people fill out these silly little boxes and saying, if you fill out this one, these are the number of points that you get. If you fill out this one, these are the number of points that you get. Based on the system of values that I brought to the university as a region, I thought, this is wrong
3: Ward Connerly, a businessman and a leading opponent of affirmative action, speaking in 1998. Ward Connerly
2: is, I think, an example of the emergence of a new voice within the African-American community, that is, the voice of black conservatism.
3: Historian Claiborne Carson says this new generation of black political conservatives speaks mostly to whites.
2: They gain an audience because what they are arguing is very much in concert with the conservative direction of the nation. They don't really have a black constituency. And in fact, much of their argument is that they don't want to identify with their blackness. Their blackness is, is simply an incidental attribute of who they are. So I think it, it's almost an argument that the time for racial identity has passed. And now we need to look upon ourselves as, as individuals And our job is to take advantage of the opportunities that are now open to us.
3: Harvard professor Henry Louis Gates, Jr. examined the social status of African-Americans in a 2004 public TV series called America Beyond the Color Line. The program was a kind of State of the Union report on black America at the dawn of the 21st century. What Gates and many other scholars found was a black community split into two social classes, the privileged and the poor. In 2004, Gates described his findings at the Commonwealth Club of California in San Francisco. He lamented the fact that many poor black youngsters shunned doing well in school because they saw it... As acting white.
9: Ladies and gentlemen, when I was growing up in the 50s, the blackest thing you could be was Thurgood Marshall or Martin Luther King. The blackest thing you could be was a doctor or a lawyer, not a basketball player or a football player. What's happened to our people? Learning the ABCs, staying in school, getting straight A's was firing a bullet straight into George Wallace's racist white heart. That's what we were taught in school. You know, my father must have told me a thousand times, get all the education you can, boy, because no white racist can take it away from you. Our people have lost
3: that. Henry Louis Gates Jr. is one of the most prominent African-American intellectuals of our time. He's a renowned scholar of black studies, a prolific writer, and a public television star. But to many Americans, Gates is best known as the Harvard professor who got into a scuffle with a cop and then made peace over a beer on the White House patio. Gates grew up in a small, mostly white West Virginia town, the son of a housekeeper and a laborer. In 1968, Gates left home for Yale University. In this speech, he fondly remembers his undergraduate days when he was part of the first generation of black students to push their way into the Ivy League.
9: We call Yale the Yale Plantation. <laughs> and we were the nouveau black people coming to change the shape of the plantation. Well, at the end of our uh, my first year at Yale, the, the, this great year when we had all these black people there, we shut Yale down. In April of 1970, we had a big strike. Remember, in eight, on, May, on May Day of 1970, the whole country went on strike. Remember, because Nixon and Kissinger invaded Cambodia. But two weeks before, then after that, was Kent State and then Jackson State. Everybody forgets about Jackson State, but the kids were killed at Kent State, then they were killed at Jackson State. Two weeks before at Yale, we went on strike. Strike was led by Kurt Schmoke, black man used to be mayor of Baltimore, was a Rhodes Scholar, became my hero. Um, in fact, I went to Cambridge largely because Kurt had become a Rhodes Scholar two years before. And um, um, we, we persuaded all of our colleagues to go on strike because the Black Panther Party would start out here in Oakland, of course. The Black Panthers were being persecuted by the police. Bobby Seale was on trial in New Haven. And we persuaded Kingman Bruce, the president of Yale, to issue a statement saying that he was skeptical of the ability of a black revolutionary to get a fair fair trial in any court in the United States. Of course, it cost him his job, but it uh, led to the strike at Yale. And so all these revolutionaries came to Yale, and their lawyers, like uh, um, uh, Gary you know, who defended the Panthers, and William Kunstler. David Hilliard got out of jail and he came. Um, Huey Newton was in jail, Eldridge Cleaver was in exile, but everybody else was there, right? And so we had this huge rally, and you have to imagine this, 5,000 people. Um, most of the, They were white, and then the 96 black kids at Yale. So we waited till they were seated, and we all walked in. March step. You know, we were bad, man. We had our dashikis, our fros were all teased out. We were wrong, because we knew we were the, the the vanguard. We were the revolutionaries. And we, you know, put all that fist on your chest and all that stuff. We Remember the soul handshake? We had that elaborate soul handshake. We would change, you know, like a security code for your computer that changes every month? We would change the soul handshake every month just to make sure you were still black, you know, that you were still up to blackness. You had to do the DAP, the Vietnam guys were teaching you all that. It was great. So we were smoking, man. Some of us had berets on, like the Panthers. Some of us had those long black leather jackets on. Most of us had dashikis on. So we walked in, lockstep, sat down. Jean Genet. The French playwright and revolutionary had been flown over from Paris to address us, man. We, this was the revolution. It was happening right before our very eyes. And he had this beautiful woman. I'll never forget that he had this beautiful woman who was translating because he spoke no English. And so in the midst, you know, officially we were supposed to be learning the Swahili and stuff. But I made a mental note, learn French. <laughs> 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 so Jean Genet gives this... Um, a great stirring speech about this was the end of capitalism corporate capitalism was in its final days and American to for sure as shooting as Marx had predicted Western capitalism was being brought down Marx predicted it would collapse it was collapsing and the revolution was being led not only by the great American Negro people as he said at that time but by the lumpen proletariat from the inner cities the natural leaders of whom Were the Black Panther Party for Self Defense being unjustly imprisoned, persecuted by that fascist J. Edgar Hoover, etc., etc., etc.? So we were jumping up and cheering. This was our moment. Then he said he wanted to make a final um, address, a direct comment to us, the new black students at Yale. And he looked at us. And he said, if there was a revolution, he was convinced there was a revolution, if there was a revolution, it would occur in spite of the fact that we had accepted admission into Yale University. (laughs) And we all looked at each other and said, that woman must get that translation wrong.
3: Harvard professor Henry Louis Gates Jr. speaking in 2004. That same year, comedian Bill Cosby also sounded a nostalgic theme when he gave a speech to mark the 50th anniversary of the U.S. Supreme Court's Brown v. Board of Education decision that outlawed racial segregation in America's schools. Cosby had a long record of supporting civil rights causes, of speaking out for poor people, and donating millions of dollars to black institutions. In his speech, Cosby praised the generations of civil rights activists who opened the doors of opportunity for African Americans, but then he gave a blistering rebuke to poor Blacks for not walking through them. He said the problem can be found in any poor Black neighborhood.
10: It's standing on the corner, it can't speak English. It doesn't want to speak English. Sta- I can't even talk the way these people talk. Why you ain't where you is, go wild back. I don't know who these people are, and, and, and I blamed the kid until I heard the mother talk. And then I heard the father talk. This is all in the house. Everybody knows it's important to speak English, except these knuckleheads. You can't land a plane with why you ain't where You can't be a doctor with that kind of crap coming out of your mouth.
3: Cosby's speech drew a standing ovation, but it sparked a national controversy. He was praised for speaking truth about the self-inflicted failings of poor African-Americans, but others were appalled. In his speech, Cosby criticized black parents for giving their children unorthodox names. Scholar Michael Eric Dyson gave a pointed response. How about
11: Condoleezza? I know she was here recently. Lord have mercy. Condoleezza. That ain't no regular name, y'all.
3: Michael Eric Dyson is a prolific public intellectual who teaches at Georgetown University. He is also an ordained Baptist minister and hosts a public radio talk show. Dyson gave this 2005 speech at the Commonwealth Club of California. He had just published a book about the Cosby controversy called Is Bill Cosby Right or Has the Black Middle Class Lost Its Mind?
11: And people ought to be able to name their kids what they want. This ain't the first generation naming their kids after consumer products in African-American culture. Africans have always been creative. Your name a Akua, your name is Wednesday. Black people name their kids after days of the week, days of the month. Name, them, name their kids after, after the, uh, the, the months, I should say. June, July, August. Name their kids after the circumstances of their birth. Hard times, pleasant times, good times. Black people have always done this. In Africa, I have an entire chapter on this in the book. And then what they did in the 30s, 40s and 50s after consumer products, Listerine, Cremola, Hershey bar. Cadillac, Eldorado. Oh, you thought it started with Alizé and Versace and Lexus. Black people always name their kids after stuff they won't can't have. Mercedes, good loving, whatever they want and can't get access to. And the point is that. We don't want to sanctify the bigotry. Plus, to me, it ain't the Negroes, it ain't the Africans, it ain't the black folk named Shaniqua that are problematic. Oh, Pookie might steal your car. <laughs> but he ain't going to write no judgment against you on the Supreme Court that will affect millions of lives now and in the future. Clarence, it's those good old American named Negroes, Africans, and black folk who have been problematic. The high bourgeois attaining... English named figures who have been so subversive of the potential of democracy to be spread. And on and on, Cosby wondered on and on, I respond. A couple of more points before I end. Mr. Cosby said that black people are more licentious than others and the black poor, look, they're more vulnerable, they're more easily targetable. Am I arguing that black poor people ain't got no problems? No, I've been black and poor. Do you think I'm crazy? The people who are most upset by black people who are poor, who do terrible things, are black people who are poor, who do the right thing, which is most of them. The blur of stereotypes that obscured Mr. Cosby's visions, that distorted his perception of the problem, that rendered him as a comedic observer, but with ingenious comedic skill, but real low social analysis,
3: Scholar Michael Eric Dyson in a 2005 speech titled, Is Bill Cosby Right or Has the Black Middle Class Lost Its Mind? You're listening to Say It Loud, great speeches on civil rights and African-American identity from American Radio Works.
10: We the people, in order to form a more perfect union, Two hundred and twenty one years ago, in a hall that still stands across the street, a group of men gathered and with these simple words launched America's improbable experiment in democracy.
3: The final speech in our program comes from the 2008 U.S. presidential campaign. Democratic candidate Barack Obama was often praised for his ability to stir a crowd with words. But the man who would become the nation's first black president rarely spoke directly or at length about the subject of race. That changed in the final weeks of the Democratic primary contest he fought against Hillary Rodham Clinton. The pastor of Obama's Chicago church had become the center of a controversy that threatened to damage the candidate's campaign. Over the years, the Reverend Jeremiah Wright had delivered incendiary sermons about racism in America. During the presidential race, Wright's words were picked up by conservative broadcasters who played excerpts of the pastor's sermons and statements. They accused Wright of being anti-American and suggested that maybe Obama was too. In March of 2008, Senator Obama gave a nationally televised address in Philadelphia that became known as the Race Speech. Obama deplored some of Wright's statements, but he drew on his own biracial history to encourage Americans to continue traveling the long, slow path away from the history of slavery and segregation in their country.
10: For the African-American community, that path means embracing the burdens of our past without becoming victims of our past. It means continuing to insist on a full measure of justice in every aspect of American life. But it also means binding our particular grievances for better health care and better schools and better jobs to the larger aspirations of all Americans. The white woman struggling to break the glass ceiling. The white man who's been laid off. The immigrant trying to feed his family. And it means also taking full responsibility for our own lives by demanding more from our fathers and spending more time with our children and reading to them and teaching them that while they may face challenges and discrimination in their own lives, they must never succumb to despair or cynicism. They must always believe <laughs> they must always believe that they can write their own destiny. Ironically, this quintessentially American and yes, conservative notion of self help found frequent expression in Reverend Wright's sermons. But what my former pastor too often failed to understand is that embarking on a program of self-help also requires a belief that society can change. The profound mistake of Reverend Wright's sermons is not that he spoke about racism in our society. It's that he spoke as if our society was static, as if no progress had been made, as if this country, a country that has made it possible for one of his own members to run for the highest office in the land and build a coalition of white and black, Latino, Asian, rich, poor, young, and old, is still irrevocably bound to a tragic past. What we know, what we have seen, is that America can change. That is the true genius of this nation. What we have already achieved gives us hope, the audacity to hope, for what we can and must achieve tomorrow. Now, in the white community, the path to a more perfect union means acknowledging that what ails the African-American community does not just exist in the minds of black people that the legacy of discrimination and current incidents of discrimination, while less overt than in the past, that these things are real and must be addressed, not just with words, but with deeds, by investing in our schools in our communities, by enforcing our civil rights laws and ensuring fairness in our criminal justice system, by providing this generation with ladders of opportunity that were unavailable for previous generations. It requires all Americans to realize that your dreams do not have to come at the expense of my dreams, that investing in the health, welfare, and education of black and brown and white children will ultimately help all of America prosper.
3: 2008 presidential candidate Barack Obama speaking in Philadelphia.
2: Barack Obama represents uh, a generation that was impacted or affected by the struggles of the 1960s, but were not part of those struggles.
3: Historian Claiborne Carson says Obama was inspired by Martin Luther King Jr. and the generation of young activists that fought for civil rights. But Obama understands that he's not one of them. Obama says that King's generation is the Moses generation, the one that tries to get to the promised land but doesn't quite make it. Obama says his generation is the Joshua generation, the one that takes advantage of opportunities opened up to them by those who went before.
2: But they have their own struggle because they understand that actually realizing the dream is difficult to do. The fact that it's not as heroic makes it in some ways more difficult. You're not standing up to Southern sheriffs. You're trying to deal with very intractable economic problems. You know, we can say that these problems have their roots in, in history, but the Joshua generation has to somehow come
3: up with answers. For generations, speechmaking has been central to the African-American political tradition and the struggle for change. From northern black abolitionists in slavery times to black power militants of the 1970s to black political conservatives of the 21st century, their speeches have been suffused with basic questions about what it means to be black in America and what America must do to offer genuine equality to all its citizens. These impassioned words continue to affect the ideas of a nation and the direction of history. ¶¶ You've been listening to an American Radio Works documentary, Say It Loud, Great Speeches on Civil Rights and African-American Identity. It was produced by Kate Ellis and me, Stephen Smith. The American Radio Works team includes Ellen Gettler, Ocean Kalin, Catherine Winter, Frankie Barnhill, Emily Torbrimson, Suzanne Pico, Steve Cornier, and Judy McAlpin. Thanks to Claiborne Carson of Stanford University, Rhonda Williams of Case Western Reserve University, and Peniel Joseph of Tufts University. You can hear many of the speeches in this program in their entirety at our website, AmericanRadioWorks.org. While you're there, you can see photographs of the orders and find out how to order the companion book and CD set for Say It Loud. You can also check out our many other documentaries about race and American history. That's at AmericanRadioWorks.org.
8: American Public Media.